Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Talking Engagement. I am your host, as always, Ben Lind, and it is my great pleasure to bring you the second episode of a brand new podcast that looks to bring you actionable insights and best practice when it comes to giving your employees amazing days at work. So, How's everybody doing? Hope you're all doing very well. Um, I want to start by saying thank you so very much for the incredible reception that the very first episode get got got rather. It's um it's always nerve-wracking to bring out a new podcast when you hope that there is going to be an appetite for it. And I think it's safe to say that uh, after the great job Pat did giving us his insights from the journey at FundApps, that uh, there is an appetite for bringing the community closer together, sharing what's working, talking openly about what isn't. And um, yeah, I really think that we're going to be able to do some great things together, everybody. So fantastic. My second guest for this episode is a very interesting gentleman by the name of David Smith. I came across David on the HR Influential List 2019. He was in the Movers and Shakers column and he was very receptive to a cheeky little email from me saying, hey, David, would love to get you on to share your opinions on the industry. So David... um he was really involved in the turnaround of Asda. I won't go into it too much more because he talks about it a lot more in the episode, but he's also uh, an avid uh, hill walker, mountain climber, writer, speaker, CEO, coach, or executive level coach, you could say. Uh, and he really did have some really interesting things to say, like some very sound bite worthy um, opinions and the guy is very fascinating. I highly recommend everybody get their notepads out and make some good notes when it comes to his thoughts on effective leadership, the importance of surveying and uh, also peer-to-peer recognition as it relates to staff morale. So that's enough from me chatting on everybody. Get yourselves ready for the fantastic David Smith and please enjoy. Thank you very much for joining me on the show. My pleasure. Absolutely. So for people who might not have heard of you, David, are you all right to give us a quick run through of and what you do? Okay, well, I suppose you could define my, my current business life as a portfolio career. I do quite a bit of business speaking uh, on culture and performance and those kind of topics. I consult on the same areas. I mentor quite a few CEOs and executives. Uh, I'm the retiring chair of the Institute for Employment Studies, which I've been doing for the past seven years, uh, and I write business books. So I'm currently about to publish my fourth, so you could say I'm a serial author, and I no longer work full-time because I spend quite a bit of time in the great outdoors. I'm a big mountain man, so I have a a kind of mixed life, if you like. After 35 years of, of corporate life, I think I deserve a bit of time to myself. Absolutely. I think that um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a change from climbing the corporate ladder and now just climbing mountains. Exactly. <laughs> Excellent. Have you, done any, um, have you tackled any particularly notable ones this year? Well, I've, I've done all the big ones in the UK, and including the sort of three big uh, three peaks at the same time. So Ben Nevis, Scarfell Pike and Snowden. Uh, I've done a bit of work in, uh, in Europe and a bit of stuff in, uh, in Scotland generally. And the, uh, the favourite area for me is still the, uh, the Lake District in England, really. Oh, you can't beat the Lake District. We, um, we're, we're based in, in Newcastle, so we're not, uh, not too far away from it. So we're quite lucky up here. Exactly. Lovely. Now, um, I first came across you, David, on the, um, well, on, on the movers and shakers list. So um, I, there was a list of HR's most influential people uh, of 2019, a, a very prestigious company you were found in. Um, so, yeah, how did you sort of get onto that list? Where do you think that all came about from? 
Well, I, I never know where these lists come from, actually, Ben. It, it seems to me that they appear, and you always think, uh, how did that get compiled? Is it because of my speaking or my books? I haven't a clue. <laughs> so just some, some kind soul out there is um, you have a sort of a mystery fan base, and, and these guys are giving you props online, and they haven't even let you know that, uh, that you've made it on. Exactly. Crazy, man. Absolutely crazy. So I suppose, uh, well, a good place to start in that case then would be sort of how you came to, to get into the HR space in the first place. Well, I, I started in the days, Ben, when it was called personnel. And I, I had a, a yen when I was younger to work with people. I, I have no idea why. Um, and I started my, my sort of personnel career, if you like it, or my HR career as it's become known in the coal industry. So, uh, as you can tell, the, the coal industry no longer exists in the UK, so that must have been a very long time ago. <laughs> and what was it like back then? Uh, it was very different. The, the world of, of industry and commerce was very different, and uh, it was very smoky in terms of the heavy industry of the country, and very smoky in, in most rooms as well. Yes, I can imagine the old-fashioned, uh, the, the yellowing walls of the, of the smoking room and all that kind of thing. Exactly. So, I mean, I, I guess in that case, then, I'd really be interested if you could just, I suppose, elaborate for us a little bit on, um, I, I guess, the most noticeable changes uh, since you started out to now. Because, I mean, I'd imagine to sort of contextualize that for you a little bit, um, you know, where I come, you know, certainly through, through my eyes, um, you know, the HR space, I, I look at that primarily through uh, sort of the metrics around employee engagement and employee experience. How do organizations give their employees, you know, amazing days at work by tending to different needs as they pertain to relationship, environment, progression, uh, all that kind yes. of thing. But presumably, yeah. if you were starting out in, in personnel, you know, around kind of mining folk, that would have been, the agenda would have been very different. It was. I mean, I think the country was different because uh, Britain, when I started work, was was a country of heavy industry. And, and certainly the way careers worked, um, people tended to stay for longer times with employers than ever they do now. Uh, the, the workplace was heavily union-dominated, so the agenda was much about uh, industrial relations, much more so than it is today. Uh, computers were in their infancy, and, and technology has expanded beyond all recognition. Um, and I think work in those days, people had to fit themselves around the workplace, whereas today, uh, the, the, the wise employer fits the workforce um, uh, needs around you know, how they can best engage people. And, and those kind of agendas and phrases were not in the workplace at all. Um, so a very different workplace to, to the one I remember as, as a youth. Um, but in, in some senses also, Ben, I would say that a lot of the issues that, that you deal with in the workplace are very similar because at the end of the day, people are people. I would I completely echo that. I mean, I, I think that to, to touch on your earlier point there about there being, um, let's say, a, you know, a massive influx of technology um, and, you know, granted that, um, that that's kind of my world. I kind of, I come from that, that area as well. And, you know, as you say, it, it is fundamentally still people dealing with people. Uh, technology will only get you so far. Um, and yeah. I suppose to that then, David, do you think that perhaps, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe uh, you know, humanity in general, but if we just focus it on the, on the HR space, do you think it's perhaps a little bit too reliant on technology now? Or do you think that there will always kind of need to be that human touch there? I think the, I think the basic problem with technology, Ben, in my experience, is that people 
uh, tend to send things out in written form um, and put them on websites. They put them on intranets and and uh, and they think they've communicated, whereas actually, um, good old face to face cannot be beaten. Um, and people keep telling me that that young folk don't speak; they just sort of send texts to each other or they're on Instagram or whatever. But I, I think language face to face is still the most powerful. So I think the danger with technology is so superb. Um, that we often forget to talk to each other. I, th- I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I, you know, anecdotally, I've certainly had instances where I've, and you know, I, I've, I suppose whether it be through habit or complacency or perhaps a little bit of, uh, you know, social awkwardness, um, you know, there have been times where I've sent a text or an email um, and sort of, you know, come to reflect on it and thought to myself, you know, there was no, there was no allowance there for tone being conveyed or, or humour or anything like that, and it would have certainly. Right a conversation that was let's say more valuable um done done face i think that there's perhaps a i don't know i would say there's perhaps an air perhaps sort of text or writing things down is it can be quite i guess comforting when it when we start to talk about things like feedback uh and sort of giving your opinion because often um you know difficult things need to be said and, and perhaps sort of more let's say, controversial or challenging ideas need to be shared and, and then perhaps kind of a degree of anonymity if it's through a platform or something like that might be, might be a comfort or, or a benefit. Sure, I think, you know, the, the, the thing with media for me is that you need to use all of it. Um, and as you say, sometimes things can be put in writing and then people will respond. Um, I think you need that mix of all the things that are available to you, really. Mm, absolutely. And um, I mean, just to, just to, to switch tack a little bit here, David, now, um, this is this is something that I, I admit I haven't actually heard this yet, and I'm very keen to uh, to understand a bit more about it. I hear a lot about you about with the the famous Asda story. I've seen this referenced online uh, quite a bit when your name comes up, and I was wondering if you'd be so kind as to share that with the rest of us. Well, I think I joined um, the business of Asda in the '90s when it was um, just. Um, coming out of, if you like, the, the ba- almost bankruptcy stage. I think people don't realize how close Asda came to literally going under. Uh, we've seen Thomas Cook go under this week, and it would it would have been equally dramatic had Asda gone under. I think we were 10 days away from the banks foreclosing at one stage. Wow. Uh, there were two rights issues of shares which kept the company afloat, and it was a low morale, low productivity, um, difficult place, and the workforce were pretty demoralized. Um, and Archie Norman was appointed as the chief executive at that time and put together a team, uh, which I joined, uh, and we set about turning around the business. And uh, there were lots of things done. Uh, Some of them worked and some of them didn't. Uh, But a few years later, we went from uh, low morale, low productivity to be number one best place to work in the Sunday Times. And uh, I've written a book on the turnaround story, which I've called As the Magic, the Seven Principles of building a high-performance culture. Because I think when you look back on, on a period of gut-wrenching change, you think, well, what were the, what were the biggest levers? Um, and the, the sort of two that I would highlight, really, are we, we stopped recruiting um, in a sort of five, ten-minute interview where we took people who had a pulse. Uh, and we began to take people who were extroverts, who enjoyed talking to people, and it turned around the the customer service, which was dire at the time, to being the best in the industry. Um, and we also began to communicate with, with our people in a very different way. We've just been talking about communication. Uh, we introduced a thing called the daily huddle, where 
uh, for every day of every week, um, all the workforce in every one of the stores and distribution centers and so on would have a five-minute download with their supervisor, uh, their team manager or whatever, which we call the daily huddle. And we talked to them about what was happening in the business, what was working, what wasn't working, what they needed to know. Um, and those two things, along with a few other things, which I, I won't go into at all, um, revolutionized the way the business was being run. We changed the management style. We did lots of things on performance management. But those first two things, the way you hire, hiring for attitude rather than skill, uh, and obsessing on face-to-face communication were the, the two I would highlight as uh, main levers of turning around the culture. And it was an amazing place to be to see all that begin to turn around a huge business uh, and save the livelihood of 100,000 people and, and build great productivity. So I thoroughly enjoyed my time. Uh, I had 15 years with Asda, and it was, it was a great learning experience for me. That sounds absolutely fascinating. I mean, I, I think it's, it's so telling that, you know, mid-90s as opposed, to, as opposed to now, and, you know, I, I dare say as we look to the future as well, open communication and letting people know what is expected of them, but also the value that their particular input brings really does drive like a high level of morale and a high level of engagement and a high level of productivity. So I think um, for, for, for you and the team to be so switched on to that back then, was uh, you know, was that viewed as, as quite a, a revolutionary step? How, how easy was it to implement to the wider business once you decided that it was the direction you were going to go in? Oh, I think it was it was typically resisted by lots of the traditional retailers who were very command and control and were used to very old world tactics of, you know, beating people until performance improved. Um, so it was a struggle. Uh, people don't adopt these things. And at the time, it was quite leading edge. Um, unfortunately, Archie Norman was the kind of guy who'd been to Harvard. He, he knew all the theory and he wanted it implemented. So there was no turning back. And I think when you've got a chief executive who's behind something, um, then there's only one way to go. Um, and I think most boards are often divided on initiatives. This was a, this was a board that was clearly going for major change and, and believed in doing it. Absolutely. And would you, could, could, I, could I push my luck and ask you to share something that you tried that didn't work? Oh, I think we did lots of things around um, using... Uh, training um, and all sorts of things around incentives and pay that, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, we would say they were not the main levers. It was the more simple stuff of, of communicating and listening uh, and changing style that, that predominates. I think we, we are obsessed as a country with pay and with remuneration. I remember people used to say to me that the reason people are leaving, David, is we're not paying enough. Um, and actually, the reason people were leaving was because of the way they were treated. And I think in lots of businesses, people say to me, we have a pay issue. Uh, and I never believe it. Uh, we used to do exit interviews. Uh, and people would always come in and, and say, I'm leaving. I've got another job and it pays me a little bit more. It's a very easy conversation. You don't tend to walk into your line manager and say, I hate you. And that's why I started looking. Uh, that's not an easy conversation. Uh, and what we did was, was to, to stop doing exit interviews completely. We felt they were a waste of time. They all said exactly the same thing. Uh, and we started to send out a list of, of reasons for looking for another job. I think we sent out 50 options. And we said, you know, we'll send that out six months after people have gone. They'll be resettled. They'll be into their new job. All the ups and downs of having left will be over. 
uh, and hopefully we'll get some kind of level of, of response. We actually got, I think, about a 60% response rate, which we were staggered by. Uh, and guess what came out number one? It was management style. Uh, and I was able to say to people, this is not about money. It's all about the way you as a line manager behave with your people. Absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, there you talk about levers and, and you talk about the way that people are treated and their relationships with their managers. And, you know, I think that even back then, you know, these were such critical things. These are things that I suppose in today's parlance get wrapped up under the gut, you know, inside the sort of label of employee experience. Um, and, yeah. you know, you hear that talked about increasingly now as, as being sort of the driver of engagement. Obviously, engagement is what all of us companies are kind of striving towards nowadays. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think you've touched on a couple there, but what would you say are kind of the most critical um, experiential pieces that, that organizations are today just like simply have to address? Well, I think every, every organization has to have a purpose um, that people can relate to that is, that is beyond making money. I think most people who spend a, a sizable chunk of their life working want to know that what they're doing is of some kind of value. Um, certainly, as far as my experience at ASDA, we, we, we didn't just talk about, you know, we want profitability. We talked about the fact that ASDA was a value brand. We were providing goods uh, and services to people who were um, the C2s, the, the Ds and the Es of this life. Uh, for whom, you know, were, the purse was not always full of money. And, and our job was to be there for them to provide the, the goods at a good value price. And that drove the whole business model. And I think it's, it's no good just saying to people, we're here to make money. There has to be some higher purpose. I think then for me, there's, there's got to be an authenticity of leaders in the company. I think it's no point pretending to be something that people can clearly see that you're not. Uh, the basis of any culture is, is the fact that leaders are who they are and, and are demonstrably doing the right thing. And their style has to be a modern and involving style. And I think the, the other pillar for me is about having uh, leaders who can communicate in an inspiring way. I think leaders need to be storytellers. They need to be people who can stand in the front of people and inspire them with what they're saying. They need to link their, their whole communication style to modern life and what's going on around them. Uh, and if people can't be authentic and lead in a modern way and inspire people, they shouldn't be in leadership roles. I think they are the basics for me of how you engage a workforce. I think those are absolutely, absolutely spot on points there. And I think that um, to your point about offering people, let's say, a, a, you know, a higher purpose rather than, you know, we're just here to put money in our shareholders pockets or indeed you're just here to do your day's wages and uh, do your day's work rather and, and take your pay packet home um this yeah. sort of touches onto the the, the theme of, of of communicating with your workforce right and and predominantly that that tends to happen well certainly in my experience that tends to happen nowadays um probably still um in the form of the annual survey but sort yeah. of increasingly more now in sort of more manageable, actionable uh, sort of pulse style surveys. So I'd just be keen to um, to get quickly, David, sort of your thoughts on the importance of a survey frequency. Um, would you agree that the annual survey has had its time? Uh, what would you say to that? I would say that's certainly true. Um, and I, I remember the, the inception of annual surveys and people getting very excited about them. Uh, I remember, you know, organizations where the survey was so horrific, they put it back in the drawer and never said a word about it. 
Um, I remember surveys never being actioned. Um, and I think annual surveys have always given organizations indigestion. You know, there's so much information. Um, and I certainly come from a large company background, and that, that is sort of writ large that it's just too unmanageable. Uh, we, when I was at ASDA, moved quickly to a monthly survey where we uh, disaggregated the organization down into twelfths. So we had a, a reading on morale every month. We found that so successful and, and much more actionable that we went to weekly. <clears throat> and we, we split the organization into um, the 52 weeks. And, uh, and therefore, it gave us a morale reading every single week. And I could then stand up in front of the business on a Monday morning and say, this is the morale reading for last week. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, much more the, the, the pulse about certain issues, if something's a hot topic, we began to do that as well. So I think I'm into more frequency, more actionability, more visibility. So we long ago went away from annual, and I advised lots of my clients that that is definitely old hat. It's not the way to be um, finger on the pulse. And I think organizations are much more immediate. And you've got to be on it, haven't you? You absolutely have to be honest. And, you know, I, I think that you hear so frequently, um, you know, stories about survey fatigue. I, I think that those who are perhaps a bit more reticent about moving to something a bit more frequent, they want to say, oh, well, we don't want to, you know, we don't want our employees to get survey fatigue. We don't want them to get sick. We don't want them to get sick of answering questions. And of course, sort of, you know, my retort to that is always, People never get tired of giving you their opinion as long as they see you doing something with it and they feel like they're being heard. Correct. That's the key point. It's not about asking people. It's about what did you do. The worst thing is to, is to say, please tell us, and then do nothing. They will then get very upset with you. Mm -hmm. um, so survey fatigue isn't about frequency for me. It's about lack of actionability. So as long as you're actioning, people will keep giving you feedback. Absolutely. I totally agree. And, and, and to your point earlier about... Um, Honesty, you know, I feel that uh, this is where, you know, sort of anonymity becomes such an important thing. Yeah. So if we sort of change lanes here a little bit again, David, so you've touched on a little bit about leaders and then needing to have that, you know, that character, that personality, um, that sort of storyteller ethic, be somebody that people can get behind. Um, yeah. You, how important, therefore, would you say it is for them to want to, be challenged and sort of seek feedback from the people that they are leading? Oh, I think it's essential. I mean, certainly in the ASDA turnaround, we made listening our number three in terms of the seven principles. Um, there was a lot of resistance to it because people said, well, you know, all we ever hear is moans and groans and we're all very busy and it's very uh, demoralizing for us as leaders to keep hearing all this negativity. Um, and we said, you know, we've got to sort some of these things out um, and we've got to take some of that negativity away. I think people need to know that you listen uh, and that you respond and that your whole ethos says, please tell me. Um, there are so many organizations where the leaders say, oh, it's like this, and the workforce say, oh, no, it's not. And that's a very bad place to be. Um, and I, I think you've got to constantly seek to open yourself up to listening to what people have to say and, and not be defensive about it. Mm. Um, I well remember when I was at ASDA, I used to give a, a speech to our incoming graduates each year we took about 200 graduates a year at that time and uh, i would talk to them about culture and performance and how important the culture was and i would talk about going into stores at the weekend in, in t-shirt and jeans incognito and people not knowing who i was and i well remember this graduate coming up to me afterwards and she said great speech david really enjoyed it she said you do realize you're deluded 
<laughs> so mm. I said to her, well, please tell me why I'm deluded. She said, well, I worked in the store that's your local store that you shop in at the weekend. And she said, let me tell you, they knew your car. And when you were driving up, they'd be on the phone, moving things on the shop floor. When you hit the, the entrance to the foyer, literally two or three minutes later, it was a different shop to the one you drove up to 10 minutes before. And I, I said to her, you know, isn't it nice that you feel you're able to come and tell me that um, and, and burst that particular bubble for me? Because, you know, in many businesses, people would, would never talk to anybody in, in an executive board position on, on fear of death, you know. Um, and I think having a healthy culture where people can tell you stuff because you're not going to kill them for it and you're actually going to do something about it is the way to be. Fantastic. And I mean, I think there, I mean, I think even now that's something that, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the modern workforce might well struggle with. I mean, I, I think that you hear, I suppose, increasingly about kind of millennials and, and Generation Z being more emboldened perhaps than those that went before them. But, you know, we talked earlier in the pod about, um, you know, how maybe that art of face-to-face communication or, or kind of exchanging, uh, I suppose, frank ideas or perhaps, you know, more more difficult to communicate ideas. How do you think a leader... So you, you talked about there at Asda, you guys fostered a culture of, of openness and transparency. Uh, what do you think a couple of sort of easy wins could be in, in implementing that in a business today? Well, I, I think one of the things that we did was to say to all the leaders in the business that you need to sit down with a group of people once a month um, and just listen to them. You're, you're not to brief them. You're not to talk at them. You're not to talk over them. Just listen and, you know, tell them at the start that there will be no recriminations. You genuinely know what they want to think. Uh, and by the way, there must be no recriminations. You know, we really emphasize the fact that, you know, whatever they say, um, there can be no recriminations. And I think giving people permission to speak is the hot tip and then making it regular that that's a discipline in the business. I think listening needs to be a disciplined thing that the organization does. So having a mechanic that says do it regularly, be seen to respond and do not in any way, shape or form jump on people who say something that you didn't particularly like. Mm-hmm implement that culture just like kind of a, a no a, a culture of no no recrimination as long as the feedback is you know honest and, and constructive and something that people yeah. can act on it's 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 valuable right it is absolutely so I, well so i understand as well david that you've got you because we spoke a little bit before the show and uh, you've said you've got a new a book coming out about uh, about bad bosses and uh, I, I was hoping we could touch on that a little bit so without kind of spoiling it too much could you, could you reveal sort of a couple of themes that this might touch on yes i mean I, the reason i i sat down to write this book um is that I, i've seen so many uh, examples in the press and, and on tv of, of bad leaders doing bad things Mm. Um, and this has been in all sorts of sectors, whether it be in show business or in, in business itself or in, in many aspects of life. We, we're still seeing classic examples of horrific leadership. Um, and we are in the 21st century and there's been lots of people taking MBAs. There's been loads of books written about how to lead. Um, and I thought it was time uh, to, to look into this whole aspect of, of what, what bad leadership is and, and how it feels for the people who are on the receiving end. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've interviewed 250 CEOs um, who've encountered bad leaders on their way up, and I've asked everybody for their worst story. Uh, and most people will say, oh, yes, David, I could fill your whole book, uh, <laughs> because we've all experienced bad leadership in our careers. We've all got a story that says, let me tell you, here's the worst that's ever happened to me 
Um, and I've compiled the number of times I've heard the same thing again. And I've compiled the, the worst 10 leadership traits and how much that irritates the people who are following those leaders. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed the exercise, and I, I hope it'll be informative to people to say to them, whatever you do, don't do any of these 10 things because they get up people's nose like nothing else. Oh, I bet that's quite... When, when does that come out? It should be out um, in the next uh, few weeks. Oh, well, I'm going to have to... Pick All the writing is done, the proofreading is done, so I'm, I'm just about to go to the publishers with it. Wonderful, I'm going to have to pick up a copy of that. I think that... Um, I mean, I, I imagine that a lot of people will be kind of, as they're listening to this, kind of scanning back through their mind and thinking about those experiences they've had where, you know, oh, there was that one manager I had and, oh, they just, you know, da-da-da-da-da. But, um, I mean, I, I think for me obviously without naming names, it's, I think the, the experiences I've suffered the most have been um, to do with somebody else's ego and not being able to, uh, not, not being approachable, you know, kind of seeing every yes. point raised as a, as a challenge um, and, a, and, a, and a need for them to prove themselves or to demonstrate how they are more knowledgeable or, or, or senior or whatever it might be and, and not being open to, to other ideas. Sure, and you won't be surprised, Ben, to know that's one of my ten. Hey, <laughs> Hubris and ego is is one of the biggies. I imagined I was gonna I was gonna say to you, um, uh, does ego feature in there, and why is it number one? But I thought I wouldn't be too pretentious there. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, well, look, David, I'm, I really appreciate your time. I'm going to finish with, uh, with with one quick question, and it's uh, it's one that I'm asking everybody who comes on the pod because I'm interested in the attitudes that people all have on this um, as it kind of spans, let's say, you know, seniority or industry or, or, or background, whatever it might be. Do you think it's time that we rebranded human resources? And if the answer oh, is yes. yes, what do you think? Oh, yes. Well, you know, I started in personnel and it then became right. human resources, of course. Uh, and many of the cynics branded human remains, as you know, <laughs> um, because that's their interpretation of what HR stands for. Uh, and when I was uh, working in Asda, I was called people director. Um, and I think, you know, most businesses are people businesses. We all employ people. Uh, and it's time we stopped using euphemisms and called it what it is. So that's my suggestion for you, Ben. It's going to be people. We're going to get rid of yep. it. We're going to call it, call it people. Yeah. Awesome. I could totally get behind that. David, thank you so very much for coming on. For anybody who wants to get in touch with you or hear more about you or perhaps, um, yeah, get more information on, on the previous books and the up-and-coming book, what's the best way for people to reach you? Uh, my email is david at davidsmith.uk.com. It's all lowercase. Uh, my website is www.davidsmith.uk.com. So either of those means would be very welcome. Absolutely wonderful. Well, David, I thank you very much for your time and uh, I'll look forward to speaking to you again soon. My pleasure. Thank you very much, David. Cheers now. And there you have it, everybody. That was the wonderful David Smith giving us his opinions on all things engagement. Now, the part that stands out for me the most inside that episode is the very memorable sentence, annual surveys give organizations indigestion. And I think... There's going to be a lot of people listening to this who can really resonate, um, really resonate with that point. It's, 
you know, it's definitely a step in the right direction, but I certainly believe that we could all be a little bit more proactive and a little bit more tailored and targeted when it comes to giving our people a voice uh, and asking them what's important to them in the day-to-day that's going to lead them to be happier, more engaged, stay at the business longer, find areas for improvement, um, and just really be like a, a fantastic cultural ambassador for all of your businesses out there. Right, that is it for this episode. Thank you all very much for joining me on the second episode of Talking Engagement. For more from me, you can follow me on Twitter at BenjaminL1ND. Look out for me on LinkedIn. My name is Benjamin Lin. Send me a connect request, a follow or a DM. Uh, You can email the show with any comments, feedback or suggestions at talkingengagementpod at gmail.com. And I look forward to bringing you another episode in a fortnight's time. We've got a very interesting guest already lined up, so do please look out for that one. Everybody, thank you so much for listening. I hope you're all very well. And until next time, stay engaged.